Hello and welcome to this podcast from the International Monetary Fund. I'm Jocelyn Frank. The shadow banking sector has surged in China over recent years. Shadow banks are not officially banks at all, but institutions outside of the banking system that loan money. The loans accounted for almost a third of the rise in lending last year. It's a sector which grew by over 50%, according to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. Savers are attracted to the better returns offered by shadow banks, but those higher returns are only possible because loans are made to riskier clients. The continued growth of this largely unregulated sector has garnered headlines and prompted concerns about the threat to China's financial sector and the wider economy if these unregulated loans go belly up. In the June issue of Finance and Development magazine, economist David Dollar of the Brookings Institute writes about China's efforts to rein in its sometimes murky shadow banking sector. I asked him to explain in more detail what exactly constitutes a shadow bank. Shadow banking consists of financial institutions that are not constituted as commercial banks. These, some of these companies, they often call trust companies, they're often closely associated with a particular bank. But what they do is they're less regulated. So the difference is they could go to households, you know, often the wealthier ones with large amounts of money. They can offer them a higher interest rate. So they might offer them six or seven percent in the current environment interest rate, whereas the banks are offering three. And then what they do with that, they have more flexibility. Banks are constrained in how much they can lend to real estate, for example. So a trust company might have confidence that its local real estate market is going to keep doing well. They're making a bet on a particular sector. You either win the bet or you lose the bet. When they lose the bet, as, as has happened with some recent cases, they basically cannot repay the households who lent them money. And households have not seen many bankruptcies. In many cases, the trust companies are closely related to state-owned banks, and people are going down to City Hall figuring that somehow the government's behind all this, so the government should make restitution for them. So that lack of clarity creates some real problems. Tell me about the emergence of this system in recent years. I mean, what is the scale we're talking about? How much is this system worth? All of that non-bank financial sector is about one-third the size of commercial banking, and that's small by international standards. So in a lot of developed countries, the non-bank part of the financial system would be a 100% or more of banking assets. But it started from close to zero, so it's growing very rapidly. That's what's caught people's attention. I've heard some estimates around $4.3 trillion worth of financial trade. Is that accurate? That's certainly in the right ballpark. You know, that's about half of China's GDP, you know, and banking assets would be bigger than China's GDP. With government stepping in to sometimes bail out a company and sometimes not, what is the impact on investors? Are they still understanding what they're getting involved with? Very good question. You know, I think the risks in the system are the, the kind of risks that are inherent in an unregulated financial sector. You know, in the, in the banking sector, when they take deposits from households, you know, they have to put quite a bit of it in reserve. They are subject to a lot of regulation about how much of their lending can go to a particular sector, like real estate, or how much of their lending can go to a particular company. So this unregulated sector, you know, by definition, avoids all of that. So it, it is riskier. These non-bank financial institutions have borrowed money from households and then lent the money, for example, to a private coal mine that's gone bust. You know, households have been very unhappy with the few situations that have developed. 
sometimes the firms that are selling these wealth management products are closely tied to the state commercial banks. So households feel that this is really all, you know, mostly state-run uh, and that there's no reason why they should lose their money. You know, and definitely in some cases the government stepped in and bailed out what are essentially private companies to prevent households from losing money. Recently, they've definitely allowed some losses to occur, so they're trying to walk a fine line. You know, they, they would like people to understand that this is an unregulated sector where you can lose money, but they also don't want to have financial panic and they don't want to have too many angry households. But in China, a lot of these decisions are made at the local government level, so you definitely have some local governments choosing to bail out even private companies that are in trouble because they're worried about the impact on their local economy or there may be a close connection between the private firm and the government. Now, I, I respect that they are facing a difficult situation. Is shadow banking unique to China? No, definitely not. Shadow banking was at the heart of the U.S. financial crisis. You know, one part of that was the so-called subprime lending, but we know it ended up working out very badly. Obviously, it had a serious housing bubble followed by collapse. So you, you find shadow banking systems in you know, all advanced economies and increasingly in emerging markets. They tend to be larger in the advanced economies where we you know, have a deliberate philosophy of having a regulated banking system and then a less regulated or unregulated non-banking sector. Considering that, would you say that there is a place for shadow banking in China's future? Oh, absolutely. I, I think so far, I think allowing it to develop was smart. Now, you know, trying to contain it so it doesn't grow too quickly and become destabilizing, I think that would also be smart. They've talked about introducing deposit insurance in the banking sector this year. That would be a big step forward because that would be a very clear statement that these types of deposits up to a certain limit are guaranteed and everything else is risky. So it's, it's been a positive development, uh, but for it to, to really play its role, it should be stimulating the ongoing reform of financial regulation. What is the risk to China if these reforms don't take hold, if the government merely suggests them but doesn't enforce them? Yeah, so one aspect of this development of the non-bank financial system is the banking sector continues to give a lot of credit to what we might call more traditional clients to the private sector, in some cases to household real estate developers. But you have to keep an eye on the overall amount of credit. And China has gone through a period where the overall amount of credit created has been very high. You know, it's stimulated a lot of investment. But now the worry is that there's excess capacity building up. Too many houses being built in third and fourth tier cities. You know, local governments have gone crazy in some places with new airports and metros and things that are hard to justify given the size of the city. Manufacturing capacities continue to grow. So I think the, the real worry for people would be you have this credit binge and this, this big explosion of investment, but that that inevitably runs out of steam. There's inevitably a hangover when you've discovered that you've built excess capacity in a lot of different sectors. And so investment then would tend to drop very sharply you know, but it's such a big part of your economy, that would definitely have a large macroeconomic effect. It's not a good scenario for Chinese people. It's not a good scenario for the rest of the world. That was economist David Dollar speaking about the future of shadow banking in China. Mr. Dollar is a senior fellow at the John L. Thornton China Center at the Brookings Institute in Washington, D.C. To hear additional podcasts from the IMF, 
go to www.soundcloud.com forward slash IMF dash podcasts.